Please uh, open your Bible to Isaiah 55, verses 6 to 13. Take a pew Bible if you don't have one and open it to page 615. You'll find it in the right-hand column. So let's stand again for the reading of Scripture this morning. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the righteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but, that, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Good morning again. Great to be with you this morning. I encourage you to keep your Bible open with you to Isaiah 55. We, it's really the foundation passage for this morning's message and really for this new sermon series that we're kicking off this morning. So keep your Bible open to Isaiah 55. We will come back to it a little bit later on uh, in the message. I want to say a few things by way of introduction in this sermon and really to this new sermon series we're beginning this morning. As you can tell, new banners, as I already mentioned the service, new sermon series on the Protestant Reformation, really on the, the biblical truths, the theological vision that was crystallized at the time of the Reformation. You can see the banner under which we're flying this new sermon series, Five Obsessions of Extraordinary Faith. So you might say it's a sermon series that is a kind of, I've never done this before at Calvary, like a birthday celebration kind of sermon series because along with Protestant Christians literally all over the world this fall, we are going to be celebrating the birthday, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Yeah, who was right? Come on now. So it was on October 31st, right? So just a couple weeks from now, October 31st, called Reformation Day, but 500 years ago, 1517, that an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther, right, he went to the castle in Wittenberg, Germany, and he famously nailed his famous 95 theses to the castle door. It was like the big bulletin board in the ancient world, and the world has never been the same since. Of course, Luther didn't go that morning to change the world. That was not his, I mean, 
grandiosity, right? Like, I'm going to launch the Protestant right? That was not on his radar screen at the time. He simply wanted to engage the church, church authorities, in a dialogue, in a debate, in what was called at the time a disputation about things that were like real, real important to the Christian faith. Things like God and the gospel and grace. Luther's deal was he was with many other people at his time. He wasn't the only one. But with many people at the time, he was distraught by what he was seeing going on in the church at the time. Late medieval Catholicism, what had happened? Well, it had developed this sort of insidious system called indulgences. You may have heard that word before when you hear about Reformation history. What is indulgences, the system of indulgences? Basically, it's like a, it's like a system of earning spiritual merit combined with money, right, where you can earn and purchase your path to salvation. And Luther saw this, and he saw it as a toxic cocktail that was killing the grace of God and distorting the gospel of God. And so his righteous soul was incensed, and he wanted to do something about it. So he marches down to the castle door, the big bulletin board in Wittenberg, Germany, and he posts his 95 theses. And with each hammer blow on the castle door, what he's doing is cracking the proverbial dam so that it breaks, and the waters of Reformation come rushing forward all over Western Europe and all beyond Western Europe as well. So that now, Oak Park, Illinois, 500 years later, it's no overstatement to say this, that Everything in the modern world, in our contemporary world, has been touched, and you could say touched deeply by the Protestant Reformation. The great American church historian Mark Knoll calls the Reformation, quote, a juggernaut of history, like a big deal, <laughs> right? Historian Philip Schaff says this about the Reformation, quote, the Reformation of the 16th century is Next to the introduction of Christianity itself, the greatest event in human history. Wow. World-transforming event in all sorts of ways. Credited the Reformation not only with, of course, the rise of Protestant Christianity, which now is nearly one billion people strong, but credited also with the rise of things like this, democracy, freedom of conscience, capitalism, modern science, a lot of other things in addition to that. So world-transforming event, this thing we call the Protestant Reformation, but its significance touches each of us, I believe, in an even more personal way. I mean, literally, like closer to home in a more intimate way. We are, think about it, we're here today worshiping in this space, quite literally, and worshiping in the way we've been worshiping precisely because of the Protestant Reformation. This building was built in the beginning of the 1900s. You may have seen on the, on the, the stone out there, if you go out that side door, this building was built originally 
as First Presbyterian Church of Oak Park. It was built as a Protestant Presbyterian house of worship in the Protestant tradition. And our, individual, our particular church, Calvary Memorial Church, we moved into this building in 1978, 1979. Our particular church was founded in 1915, just two years shy of the 400th anniversary of the Reformation. And we began our life as a church, as an independent Bible church, which of course places us squarely within this stream of Reformation and Protestant theology and ways of doing worship and life as a church. And so you can see, y'all, not only does the Reformation, what I'm trying to say is touch our world like globally, historically, it is a juggernaut of history. It's a huge, huge deal. But it touches, I think, our lives as well in some very personal, intimate ways. We are here worshiping today precisely because of the Reformation. It's only fitting that we join Christians all around the world. The Germans, for example, have been spending a decade, the past decade, revving up to celebrate the Reformation, right? They had a decade of celebrating the Reformation. We're going to spend eight weeks celebrating the Reformation, joining Christians around the world in celebrating what the Reformation means about biblical Christianity and what it means for you and for me. But check it out. Sometimes we can remember the past just to remember the past. Sometimes we can take a look at the past and we're doing so no more, I mean, just kind of merely out of a sense of like loyalty to the past, nostalgia for like it used to be really cool back then and now it kind of stinks today, like nostalgia, romantic view of the past, or worse yet, out of a kind of sentimentality for the past, about the past. I remember a few summers ago, my dad dusted off and pulled out his old, not our old, his old home movies, his old family home movies, the kind that are in black and white. Some of you don't know what black and white is, right? But we had the black and white videos. He invited the whole family to join him in watching this, which is like a, a forced family outing is what it amounted to. So we sat down, gathered around, and watch these videos, and we spent a couple of hours, and the charming thing, or the kind of the interesting thing was he was narrating, you know how this goes, he was narrating every little detail about every person that came on the screen and every event and every circumstance, and it went on like this for hours, and I'm just going to say it was a memorable experience. <laughs> Some of you may be honestly wondering whether the next two months at Calvary are going to be a little bit like that. Each Sunday, you're going to show up at church, and we're going to force you to learn some dusty, old, tired lessons of church history and watch the whole video in black and white, pretend like it's fun, wondering if you should just bring some popcorn with you as you come to church for the next two months. If that's your worry, like this is just going to drift off into like church history talk, let me assure you of something. Our reasons for looking back to the Reformation aren't sentimental, they're strategic. We're doing more than just remembering the past. What we're doing is recovering the spirit of the Reformation, not just remembering it as an event, reaching back 
to recover the spirit of the Reformation, the insights that animated the Reformers, the vision of God and the gospel and grace that gave rise, y'all, to this world-shattering and transforming movement of exceptional faith. Or maybe I can put it this way. I believe we need to once again become obsessed with God, like the Reformers were. And we need to recapture extraordinary faith, like the Reformers had. Why do I say that? I say that because of this, the unique, personal, cultural, social, spiritual challenges that we all face in our day and age here in the 21st century. Some unique challenges. What are these challenges that call for reformation like faith? Let me give you this morning four challenges that I think call for obsession with God and extraordinary faith, Reformation, biblical, historic Christian faith, for reasons. One has to do with culture. The second has to do with churches, our church and churches, evangelical churches. The third has to do with our children. And the fourth has to do with our own convictions, for reasons why we're going to look at the Reformation, or you might say, call these Wilson's four theses, why we need to recapture the Reformation, and thank goodness it's only four, not 95. (laughs) Here's the first reason. Here's the first thesis. Here's why we need to think seriously about the insights crystallized at the time of the Reformation that get us back seriously into the Bible and into historic Christianity. Here's the first reason. It has to do with culture. Culture. I'll put it this way. Our culture has become officially post-Christian and increasingly anti-Christian. Our culture has become officially post-Christian and increasingly anti-Christian. Christianity will not survive, therefore, or at least it won't thrive, without Christians becoming a little bit more obsessed with God and living with extraordinary faith. Because we live in a post-Christian society. Won't go into the reasons why that is officially a post-Christian society. In recent years, events in law and culture that have pushed us there, and not just post-Christian, but anti-Christian because of the laws and other things pushing us there. Won't go into all that this morning, but perhaps some statistics will help point this out. Check this out. Nearly, check it out, nearly a majority of Americans, almost 50% of Americans like that we meet and we do life with, we go to work with, like when polled, almost 50% of Americans now claim that religion and faith, and in particular the Christian faith, is part of the problem in America, not part of the solution. 
so that faith, in 2017, 500 years on from the Reformation, faith isn't a good thing. It's a bad thing. It's a liability. It, as one famous book put it, poisons just about everything. Faith makes you bigoted. Faith makes you hypercritical. Faith makes you homophobic. Faith makes you self-absorbed. Faith makes you intolerant. Faith makes you, worst of all, perhaps in our culture, extremists. Extremists. Social commentator Rod Dreher wrote a very good book that has just come out not too long ago called The Benedict Option. I'd commend that to you, The Benedict Option. And this is what he says in the book. And this is not hyperbole. This is not melodrama. Listen to what he says. Quote, The light of Christianity is flickering out all over the West. There are people alive today who may live to see the effective death of Christianity within our civilization. By God's mercy, the faith may continue to flourish in the global south, places like South America and Africa where Christianity actually is thriving. Might continue to flourish in the global south, Rodrero writes, and China, but, he says, barring a dramatic reversal of current trends, it will all but disappear entirely from Europe and North America. This may not be the end of the world, he goes on to say, but it is the end of a world. And only the willfully blind would deny it. For a long time, we have downplayed or ignored the signs. Now, the floodwaters are upon us, and we are not ready. Post-Christian culture. But not just post-Christian. I'm very sorry to say anti-Christian. And increasingly, and that is, increasingly antagonistic to and hostile to the Christian faith. So that the trend appears to be the increasing marginalization of faith and of people of faith in normal mainstream society in the United States and in Europe. So Rod Dreher comments again in his book, The Benedict Option, listen, quote, American Christians are going to have to come to terms with the brute fact that we live in a culture, one in which our beliefs make increasingly little sense to others. We speak a language that the world more and more either cannot hear or finds offensive to its ears. Post-Christian, anti-Christian. Our culture is becoming both officially post-Christian, increasingly anti-Christian, and I believe Christianity will not survive. It certainly won't thrive without Christians who are and become again a little obsessed with God and live lives of extraordinary faith. Reason one has to do with culture. Reason two brings a little bit closer to home, has to do with our churches. And here's how I would state the second reason why we need to reach and recapture Reformation, Reformation vision of biblical Christianity in our churches and in our lives. Reason number two has to do with our churches, and it's this. Let me put it this way. Our churches 
evangelical churches, our churches are being colonized by what you might call moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. So that Christianity won't survive, or at least it won't thrive, not because of external pressures, but because of internal corrosion without a return to historic, biblical, and reformational faith, moralistic, therapeutic deism is colonizing American Christianity. What is moralistic, therapeutic deism, Pastor Todd? <laughs> You're going to want to know this phrase. I think I've used it a couple times before, but add this to your lexicon, right? I mean, don't drop it at a cocktail party, but just add it to your lexicon, right? So this is... This is a phrase that Christian Smith, a, a believing sociologist, came up with in 2005, and he came up with this phrase to try to capture, like, the religion, the faith of, like, young adults and teenagers in the United States. He's a sociologist. He did this widespread study of American religion among youth, young adults and teenagers, and, like, the kids in our home. You sit down with them and interview them and, and try to probe, what do they really believe? What is the de facto religion of young adults and teenagers? And what he came up with was this. It is not historic biblical Christianity. Rather, it is an imitation called moralistic therapeutic deism. What does that exactly mean? It's moralistic. That is to say... The view that God, in essence, wants people to be good, nice, and play fair with each other. It's moralistic. It's also therapeutic. That is to say, the goal of life is not to honor and glorify God as the chief end, but rather to be happy and to feel good about yourself. It's therapeutic. And it's deistic. That is to say... Most young adults running around today, even in evangelical churches, are not thinking that God is particularly involved in their day-to-day -day lives, but may show up if they get in a bind and cry out to Him in prayer real hard. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Colonizing American Christianity and our churches. New York Times editorial writer Ross Dothit doesn't use that big fancy term like a sociologist would moralistic therapeutic deism. He just uses as a social commentator a very simple word that's very easy to understand. He calls it bad religion, <laughs> right? Wrote a book by the title, Bad Religion. He says our problem is not that we've got too much religion. Our problem is that we don't have enough religion. And that is to say we've got bad religion. This is what he says. Quote, we are witnessing the, you got to hear this, the slow-motion collapse of traditional Christianity. Why, why would we spend eight weeks talking about the Reformation and reaching back? Because we are witnessing the slow-motion collapse of traditional Christianity. And, he says, the rise of a variety of destructive pseudo-Christianities in its place. He doesn't use the word, but moralistic therapeutic deism. And what does that look like? Well, Dothit says it looks like this. Choose your own Jesus that empowers people like 
gives permission to people to make or remake the Jesus of the Gospels in their own image so that they're all good with Jesus. Like Florida Georgia Line says, we all go with Jesus. Some of you listen to country music, don't you? You caught that illusion, didn't you? The choose your own Jesus mentality or the name it and claim it teaching. Sometimes called health and wealth that substitutes biblical priorities like self-denial and sacrifice and a bloody cross for American values like power and prestige and money. Or like the God within spirituality that is so rampant, not just in those bad folks over there, those sort of washed out churches over there, but like within evangelical Christianity, God within spirituality that owes a lot more in its whole substance to New Age than to the New Testament. Bad religion. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Perhaps J.I. Packer, the famous evangelical theologian, put it best. He doesn't use all those fancy terms. He just calls it hot tub religion. The hot tub, Packer says, is, quote, the perfect symbol of the modern route in religion. The hot tub experience is sensuous, relaxing, flabby, laid back. It's not in any way demanding, whether intellectually or otherwise, but very, very nice, even to the point of being really great fun. He goes on to say this, many today want Christianity to be like that, hot tub religion, and labor to make it so. And the ultimate step, of course, he says, tongue-in-cheek, would be to clear the pews out of churches and clear the, the chairs out of churches and install hot tubs, and then you'd never have an attendance problem. Only problem is you wouldn't have biblical Christianity anymore. And so our churches are being colonized by moralistic therapeutic deism, hot tub religion, bad religion. As a result, Christianity, really, it will not survive or it will not thrive. It isn't a slow motion collapse in North America, and it will not thrive and survive without a return to historic, biblical, reformational faith. Culture, churches, a little bit closer to home. Thirdly, children children. Let me put it this way. Our children, our children no longer find the Christian faith compelling. Our children no longer find the Christian faith compelling. Evidently, this is the case. And so the faith will not survive quite literally from generation to generation, certainly won't thrive without young people being captivated, their imaginations, their lives by a slightly obsessed faith that is indeed compelling because they're not finding the faith compelling. Why do I say that? Check out these statistics. One-third of college-aged young adults, one-third, 33%, have no interest in religion. 
It's the rise of what is called the nuns, right? Not N-U-N-S, right? N-O-N-E-S. You fill out the census reports and you say what kind of religion you are, and 33% of millennials, young folks, are filling in the bubble at the bottom. None. Fastest growing religious movement in the United States, and it's not even religious. But check this out, y'all. 59%, almost 6 in 10, of Christian young adults, the kinds of folks that are in Sunday school and youth group right now and this week, all around the United States and here at Cal, 6 in 10, statistically speaking, will stop going to church when they hit their 20s, basically when they go to college or, or graduate from college and move on into their professional life. And what is even more, more sobering, a high percentage of them never return. They'll graduate from high school, they'll leave their homes, and in all likelihood, they will leave the Christian faith and never come back. Why is that? Sure, the cultural pressures are enormous. Yes, unprecedented and enormous. Having a huge impact on young adults and millennials, that is a a big, big deal. The cultural pressures from outside, some of the things we've already talked about. But I think we need to be a little bit more sober-minded and I would say even self-critical. We need to look a little closer to home, to our own homes, to our own churches, to our own families, to, I'm paying to say it, our own lives. Because it seems as if, certainly statistics are bearing this out, that what young people are seeing of the faith is not very compelling. It's not that they're running around not wanting to find it, not wanting to find anything compelling. They're just going for the most compelling thing. And it's not the faith they're seeing. So that they're excited about Instagram, but not about the incarnation. They're pumped up to play Xbox, but could care less about communion. They gotta have a new iPhone, but don't seem to care at all about assurance of salvation. And as they get a little bit older, they know all sorts of stuff about gender fluidity, but nothing about the doctrine of the Trinity. Because it's all just abstract ideas with very little compelling power. Somehow, they're not finding the Christian faith compelling. The faith they see lived out in the lives of their friends, their family, the church, and their pastors. Which, of course, is a wake-up call to me, I suspect to all of us who care about not only our kids, but the survival of the Christian faith in the United States. 
Our children are no longer finding the Christian faith compelling. We need a recovery of some obsession with God. From culture to churches to children. There's a fourth thing I want to mention, reason why we are doing this retrieval exercise, this recapturing the spirit of the Reformation. A fourth reason, and it has to do with our own convictions. Let me put it this way. Our own Christian convictions are often just cognitive assents and not life drivers. They are often cognitive with my head, assenting, yeah, I believe that, not things in your soul that drive your life. Because cognitive assents, like, yeah, I believe that, they don't animate extraordinary faith. Only obsessions determine life. What do I mean by this? I mean this, that while many Christians will hold many good and true beliefs, and no doubt they would say, yeah, those beliefs are really important. Like, I've learned these beliefs, and I've embraced these beliefs, and these beliefs are important to me. Here's the deal, it seems to me, often this is the case, that those same beliefs are nothing more or little more than religious ideas on a doctrinal checklist safely put away in a desk drawer somewhere. Which is to say they're not life drivers, obsessions, real commitments that have like real purchase power on decision-making, lifestyle, personal habits. Instead, I think, I, I don't think you'll put up much of an argument with what I'm about to say. Instead, what seems to often shape our lives, our job, our financial situation, our friends, and our family background, seems to have the determinative impact. Not the Christian faith, the real life driver convictions, but cognitive assent that don't really shape life. The problem with this, though, is that our faith falls short of being extraordinary and looks rather ordinary. And so as a result, our Christianity becomes less and less vibrant and risky, slow motion collapse, and more humdrum and business as usual. Not very compelling, not very transformative, not very world-changing. Culture, churches, children, our own convictions from wide-reaching scope right down into our own hearts and lives. And so I want to say, in light of those four theses about why we need the Reformation, that on the eve of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, I just want to say, we need a Reformation. And we need revival, and we need renewal in our hearts and in our homes, in our churches, in our communities, in our culture, in our society, in our world. Not business as usual, Christianity. 
But authentic, real, vibrant discipleship to the risen Lord, no ho-hum faith, but extraordinary faith. The kind of faith we find in the Reformation articulated, the kind of faith we see lived at the time of the Reformation where these were matters of life and death. The Protestant reformers, you might say, found the secret to extraordinary faith. Certainly the father of the Protestant Reformation did, Martin Luther. He found the secret to extraordinary faith. In his biography on Luther, on Martin Luther, Martin Marty says this about Luther. Listen to this. Please hear this. Quote, Explain Luther's life story as you will. It only makes sense chiefly as one rooted in and focused by what has to be called an obsession with God. Is that not a great description of a life? When I am dead and my family is gathering around my dead body to talk about what to put on her husband or dad's tombstone. I hope they say something along the lines of, he was obsessed with God. Not with retirement or politics or leisure or sex or food or fashion, but with God. He was obsessed with God. You may be sitting there wondering, well, how, all right, all right, uh, obsessed with God. How, how do I get there? Like, how do I fuel an obsession with God? Where does that come, how's that catalyzed in my heart and life, this obsession with God that is in the Reformation and biblical Christianity? How does that happen? Where does that come from? For the Reformers, the answer was super simple. Not easy to live out, but super simple. And it was there, check it out, all along, right from the start, from the first hammer blow on the Wittenberg Castle door, Luther's 95 Theses, it was right there in the middle of the Theses, the secret to a life obsessed with God, the rocket fuel for a passion for God, there in Thesis number 62, where Luther just says this. Quote, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God, unquote. All that needs to be said, the gospel, that's the rocket fuel, the story, the event, the reality of what God has done in Christ, glory and grace in the person of Jesus, not that God plays nice and would like us to play nice, but rather that God is holy and righteous and judges sin, yet has provided a substitute, a bloody sacrifice, a son who is a savior who died on a cross, that is the gospel. And it's what Luther referred to when he said, this is the most holy gospel, wow, of the glory 
and the grace of God. It's what the whole Reformation was about. It's what we're going to be about over these next several weeks. All about the gospel of the glory and grace of God. I've already mentioned the historian Philip Schaff, the church historian. He says this about the Reformation. He says, the Reformation didn't invent anything. The Reformation didn't kind of like create a new religion. Rather, what he says about the Reformation is this. Listen to this. He grabbed this phrase. He says, the Reformation was, quote, a deeper plunge into the meaning of the gospel. Brilliant way to talk about it. A deeper plunge into the meaning of the gospel. You know, sometimes when you go to the pool in the summer, you like dip a toe in, right? Test it out, check it out. Other times you go to the pool and you're feeling kind of ambitious and you bring your lemonade with you, right, or whatever you got, and you're sitting on the, on the shallow end on the steps, kind of splashing around half in, half out, just chilling. That's not what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks. We're going to the deep end. We're getting on the diving board. We are plunging in. Be warned, we're going to get our hair wet. <laughs> we're going all the way under going to dunk our whole bodies, heart, mind, soul, spirit in the truth and beauty of the gospel like Luther did, like the other reformers did, so that our lives are marked by the same kind of obsession that marked their lives, not obsessed with the trivial stuff. Who wants to have their life obsessed with trivial stuff? This guy was obsessed with trivial stuff. May he rest in peace. <sighs> This is missional. This isn't doctrinal and theoretical. This is missional. What is the world crying out for but something compelling? People on the street believe the craziest things as long as they're believed with an obsession. May we be obsessed anew with God and the gospel and the true treasure of the church. How are we going to do this? How are we going to explore this obsession with God that drives extraordinary faith? Well, you see that big five, five obsessions of extraordinary That's what we're going to look at five obsessions over the next five weeks, and then we're going to go two more additional, three more additional weeks, and we're going to throw some free stuff in at the end of the sermon series. You have to wait for that, right? Come on, come on. We're going to look at five obsessions of extraordinary faith. It's often called, in Reformation language, the five solas of the Reformation, which sounds, I know, like something you get at Starbucks. I'd like a venti five sola, right? <laughs> I know it sounds like that, but these are delicious little Latin phrases that safeguard biblical faith. Did you catch that? Want to get really wacko on you? I'm going to start, I could call the five solas the grammar that helps us speak the gospel rightly. Five solas of Reformation faith, of historic biblical faith. What are they? Sola Scriptura is the first one. Scripture alone, it is our authority. The Bible and the life of the church and the life of the Christian. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Life is ultimately a gift of God. So too our salvation, all grace, all gift. Grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Heart of the Reformation. Salvation is not by works, but by faith. So there's no striving in the Christian life. All the legalists here in this morning, no striving in the Christian life. 
resting by faith in all that God promises to be sola fide. Number four, solus Christus, Christ alone. One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. No priest, no guru, no sage, no pastor. Take the place of Christ. He is the son of our solar system around which our lives must orbit. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And when you got all those four solas, you get the fifth by natural consequence. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. The five solas that help us speak, sing, share, celebrate, pray, live, and preach the gospel. A deeper plunge into the gospel. A careful look at the cross of Christ. A sustained engagement with God's astonishing grace. A thoughtful embrace of the beauty of the gospel. And, catch this, a renewed appreciation for the power of God's Word to transform our hearts, our lives, our church, our world. There was, I want to call it, a prophetic vision that animated the Reformers and Reformation faith, a prophetic vision, a vision of God, a vision of His grace, a vision of the gospel, a vision of God's Word, the power of God's Word to change, to renew, to reform, to revive. It is a vision the Reformers had. It is a vision they share with the biblical writers. They didn't invent it. They got it. Check it out. Sola Scriptura from the Bible. We've already heard about this vision this morning. In the Scripture reading at the beginning of the message, the prophet Isaiah and all the other writers of Scripture have this vision of the power of God the power of God's Word to transform and change and renew and revive. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my Word be. It goes out from my mouth, the Lord says. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Reformation faith has incredible confidence in God's Word to accomplish God's purposes in God's people and in God's world. That's what Luther believed. That's what animated his extraordinary faith. Credited as the father of the Reformation. But here's the fun thing. Luther didn't want to take any credit for the Reformation, for what God did. In fact, in vintage Luther fashion, he says this in reflecting upon all that had happened from his nailing his 95 theses on the castle door 
in Wittenberg, Germany. He says this about the birthing of the Reformation through his actions. He says, quote, I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip Melanchthon and Nicholas von Onsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses on it. Then he says this, the title for this morning's message, I did nothing. The word did everything. That's the spirit of the Reformation. God does everything, man, not much. God's glory is compelling. God's grace is transformative. God's Son is beautiful. God's Word is all-powerful. It's the spirit of the Reformation. It is the heart of biblical faith. It is where we're going over these next two months. And may I say, lastly... May God in his grace and kindness, grace and glory, do something extraordinary in our time, in our church, in our community, in our lives and homes and workplaces and country. Not just reformation, y'all, but revival and renewal. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you that you are our great God of highest heaven, as we're going to sing in just a moment. You are so stunning and beautiful and compelling, not just in your person, but in the way you've acted in history and, most importantly, revealed yourself in Jesus, our Savior. Talk about compelling. Father, we pray that over these next weeks you would do a fresh work in our hearts and lives and our, our families, in our church community and in this broader community, indeed, across the country, around the world, as we are celebrating Reformation faith, may it not be just remembering the past, but recapturing the impulse, the passions, indeed, the obsession of biblical historic Christian faith. For Jesus' sake, for His glory, we pray this. And in His name, amen.